Thank you everyone for tuning in to Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And here, we believe that history is people, these are their stories, and they are written in blood. And today, you're going to get a little break from my usual droning or monologue, whatever it is I do. I have a very special guest here that um, is going to tell us a few stories and about a project that she works on in her hometown that I think really um, is a great service to the history community. Um, it's certainly one of the most worthy history projects that I've ever encountered since I've been in the history you know, podcast community, so to speak. So um, Autumn, I'm going to hand the mic over to you and you introduce yourself and uh, feel free to talk to my audience and, and um, you know, let us know the, the guys that we're going to be looking at today. All right. Um, so first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I always love talking about my boys. Um, my moms can advocate for the fact that I will talk their ear off about them. So, um, <laughs> uh, but my name is Autumn Hendrickson. I am from a relatively small um, town in Massachusetts called Reading. Of course, it's spelled reading and everyone makes the joke about the reading library. Yeah, or or mono- it reminds me of Monopoly. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's definitely, um, it's, it's, it's also really fun doing research about my town because reading is a word. So when you look up reading, most things don't distinguish between a capital R and a lowercase. So, (laughs) but, um, either way, I have been, uh, working on, um, a series, it started off as a series of articles for my local newspaper. And I've since decided to finish the series of articles, but also write a book about all the people that I've missed. And these articles uh, started last summer, and they are focused on the men and women from my hometown that went to war in 1941 uh, and, and entered World War II as combatants, as you know, nurses, as supply men, all sorts of the, the, all sorts of things. The the jobs, the experiences are very diverse. I mean, there are even stories about civilians who were caught up in the middle of it all. So, um, that's that's what I do. Um, I have a Facebook page for my book called Redding's Boys. If you want to check it out, um, and I also I have social media on social media. Um, you can find me pretty easily um my twitter handle is like two underscores autumn leaf and then two more underscores i made it when i was in high school don't judge. <laughs> um, but um and i also speaking of high school i am one year out of high school i just finished my uh, freshman year of college so today, oh my gosh congratulations yeah thank you it was a it was a nightmare. It was so crazy, um, but I, I survived. Um, you know, so just today, one of the things that, you know, real quick, I, I wanted to say, and yeah, I want to get ahead. this in is one of the things that got me interested in, in history um, in general, and then also, you know, sort of the seed for me starting a history podcast. Um, yeah. It was genealogy. Like I, I was big yep. into genealogy. I love genealogy. Yep. I sank my teeth into it. And, and one of the things that I, I loved about it is that the stories of the people of the past that are otherwise forgotten, mm. to be able to connect with them, especially on a emotional level, um, right. it, it's, it, it just, it creates such a, such a sensation for, for the genealogist, for the person doing the research. And 
you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, sometimes I, it's like, Hey, you know, you should really check out this cool story that I found. And some people are actually like, Oh yeah, that's great. You know, whatever. But, um, yeah, you yeah. know, the, that's the nice thing is with the, the history, people who are into history and the history audience, they're really into those stories. Um, and so I, when I came across your project, we connected through Kara's, uh, time travel talks group. Um, yeah, that when I, when yeah. I came across what, what you're working on, you're, you're doing exactly what, I loved about genealogy research is your, these are, these are real people. These are their stories. Yeah. Notes, they're written in blood, you know, is my tagline and, yeah. and you're bringing them back to life. You know? Yeah. It's, it's honestly, it's one of those things that I thank my lucky stars every day that I found them and that they found me. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like it, I, I mean, I got into all this through genealogy too. And for me, it was, I, I actually really, I always liked history, but I was never like a really like big history buff. I I always thought it was interesting, but I think it was when I like, when I learned how much blood my family spilt in world war one, I felt like I was like, I need to, I need to know more about this. I need to understand why so many men from my family felt compelled to go sign up. I mean, Heck, I had a guy on my my mother's side of the family who was too old and did the math on how to make it so that he fit the cutoff on the enlistment papers. Wow. He did the math on the papers and they still let him in. Um, That's amazing. So, I, I mean, it's 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 one of those things that it's it's very um, compelling immersive there's so many words to describe it but yeah yeah yeah, that's amazing okay so take us all the way back to uh world war ii era um reading massachusetts sure so i'm gonna talk about um first at least I'll, i'll talk about christopher stephen mitchell um who chris so christopher was not actually born in reading he did not live in reading at all until after the war had ended um, so he's kind of unique in that way. I do include those people in my in my stories and everything, but um, they're sometimes harder to find just because you usually have to find them through relatives. Sure. Um, many of the men that I research and talk about, I never met anyone who was related to them. I never met them, you know, so it's both a blessing and a curse having a relative because it's great that you can find out about it, but then it's also like sometimes they don't know any more than I would. You right. know? Um, but Christopher Stephen Mitchell is, he's a very, his story is very sad, but it's also one I think that really is def- defining of his generation. Uh, and I think his story is one of the reasons why we call them the greatest generation. Um, he was actually born on Christmas day. In 1918. Um, what a gift. <laughs> yeah, so he always got screwed on uh, his gift giving. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Um, and so he he was born on Christmas Day, 1918. Um, I believe he had some siblings. I, I don't really, I'm blanking right now on um, if they were brothers or sisters, but I have this feeling that it was like either he only had brothers or he only had sisters. I don't know why I think that. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, um, Christopher had actually, he was in the Marines. 
Um, and he had been in the Marines since before Pearl Harbor uh, was attacked on December 7th, 1941. He, he joined up in the summer of 1941, probably not knowing what was coming his way. Um, wow. And actually, according to his uh, son, he was getting ready to go to France, for, or France uh, to England for duty in an embassy there. Um, and an American embassy there, um, right before Pearl Harbor happened, mm. um, he had even learned some French sayings and things like some French, some, um, some, uh, English slang, you know, from England, obviously that slang, not ours. Um, you know, he was learning all this stuff and then all of a sudden Pearl Harbor was bombed mm-hmm. and it all fell apart. Um, and Obviously, his orders were changed pretty quickly, um, and he was, uh, un- unfortunately for him, he also lost a cousin in, in the bombing of Pearl Harbor, a, a Wallace Mitchell, who was on the battleship Oklahoma when it was sunk. Oh um, yeah. And so definitely a family feeling there. Um, and... You know, it's really thanks to this man's son that I can tell Christopher's story so well. Um, He was with the 2nd Marine Division, um, which was pretty unlucky. Um, The 2nd Marine Division ended up going into into Saipan, uh, Tarawa, Tenyan, all those places. None of those were great places to be. Um, Saipan especially was pretty bad. a lot of people know that know about World War II know that the Japanese were rather infamous for um, letting the Marines land land unopposed. Um, so you would come in uh, and there would be nothing there shooting at you. Um, and and so it was it was one of the like scare tactics they used, but it was also very smart because they would let everyone pile up on the beach. And then they would strike. And then there, you're also gaining confidence at that point. Right. Too. You're thinking, hey, there's nobody Yeah, here. you're getting cocky. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. And so Christopher's unit, when they, I mean, they had, before they landed on Saipan even, they had come ashore on, on uh, Tarawa. And that's one of the things that I think people forget. So the Pacific versus European theater, theater. Europe, there was one big landing, and we all know what that was. That was D-Day. Right. The big landing. That was the invasion of the continent of Europe. Most of the men who fought in Europe only ever landed on a foreign you know, land once, and that was on D-Day, except uh, excluding the people who had fought in North Africa and Italy. In the Pacific... If you only landed on one island, it was probably because you got either killed or because you got shot to pieces. Um, That's a really good point. I never thought about Yeah. There's a huge distinction. Uh, Yeah, because you've got all those islands in the Pacific and you're Uh you're island hopping, you know, from from one to the other. Yeah. And each time is as dangerous as the other or more dangerous. Wow. Yeah. And so it's very very hard, I think, to realize. But once you realize it, it's kind of mind-blowing to think like – you know, we imagine D-Day is such a harrowing event, such a traumatizing thing for the country. And then we forget that there were men who did this over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again for like four years. 
and never got the same glory, you know, and, and that was, that was something that was pretty hard for some of these men and especially for Christopher, but, um, you know, Christopher would land on Tarawa, which was tiny. It was about the size of New York central park. Um, and, and this happened a lot in the Pacific. Um, Instead of actually landing on the island, the landing crafts got hung up on the coral um, that was off the island. And so they they couldn't get in. Mm. Uh, And so the men had to jump over the sides and try to swim in to the land. And and most of them had packs on, you know, like hundreds of pounds of equipment. Um, The water was way over their heads. uh, And... Tarawa by the time they actually got to Tarawa their buddies were piling up dead on the beach Mm. Um, and Christopher's son had said to me that you know his father had to push his way through dead bodies to get to the beach oh that's awful I mean and and it's, it's so awful because you know it was a mistake it wasn't even intentional you know, like it wasn't intentional that they landed and they got lit up this way, but that they landed in the wrong place on coral way off of the island and had to like get there. And um, and so that was one of the first exceptions to this rule that the Japanese is president that they had set that they would not fire on you when you landed. They would wait. Of course, Tarawa was different. And then... After Tarawa was over, um, he, and for the record, Christopher made it through Tarawa unscathed. He was okay. Um, He came into Saipan, and that is where the story really gets gritty. Um, So, for the record, by the way, um, Christopher, uh, during the Saipan operation... Um, he was with uh, Company E of the 18th Marine Regiment, uh, Sef- 2nd Marine Division. Um, and uh, his son said that he thought maybe his dad was in charge of uh, y- utilizing and operating flamethrowers at times. But he also knew that his dad was in the demolition team, which was um, those were the people that would charge the enemy pillboxes and blow them up. Wow. Um. And he said that his father once said to him that the Japanese machine gunners in the pillboxes were chained to their machine guns so they wouldn't run away. Holy smokes. And so, yeah. And so he, you know, like he had to kill these people right in front of them. Like um, he used pipe bombs. He used Bangalore torpedoes, which Bangalore's, you know, a lot of people know about from this, the movie Saving Private Ryan. Um, right. Exactly that concept. Shove the shove the thing into the pillbox, run away. Um, and it, it was very... It, it was just very, it was a very traumatic job to do. I mean, to get up in someone's face and either fry them alive or blow them up. Um, and when he landed on Saipan, now Saipan was arguably one of the worst campaigns of the war. Um, Saipan and Peleliu kind of are together in like the second place spot besides Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Um, which Christopher was lucky to avoid. He did not have to land on Iwo Jima or Okinawa, but he did land on Saipan. Um, 
he missed Peleliu as well, which was lucky. Um, but Saipan, uh, Saipan was a campaign, if I'm remembering correctly, it was around the same time as, as D-Day, I want to say. It was around, it was middle of 44, maybe the fall of 44. Um, and Saipan was also very small. Um, it was not a big island at all. Um, and so this story is taken uh, from a, a very helpful email that was sent to me from this man's son, from Christopher's son, David. Um, and I, I also, I knew about this already, but I didn't know, I never had really thought about how serious it was um, and how much it impacted the men who served on Saipan. The difference between Saipan and a lot of the other places that these men, you know, fought on was that there were a lot of civilians on the island. Um, and many of them had been told by the Japanese that the Americans were monsters and that the Americans would rape them and tear them limb from limb and, you know, torture them. And so, of course, they did not want to be captured by the Americans because they were scared of them. Um they were almost as scared of them as they were of the Japanese. Um, and so I guess this man's father told him a story about how the Marines on Saipan were told to yell into these caves because that's where they would go hide. The civilians would go hide with their children and their wives in the, in this, in these caves that were on the Island. And so they would yell in um with the interpreter and t tell them to come out and surrender. And if they didn't, that they would have a hand grenade thrown into the cave because the people there were known for booby trapping themselves under, you know, because the Japanese would basically say, I, okay, so we're going to kill you right here, right now in front of your whole family, or you can be booby trapped or we'll just kill you and booby trap you anyway. You know? So it was like, there was no way they could win. Um, so they were dangerous and it was very it was very psychologically painful for the Marines to, to do this. Um, and so when they refused to come out of the cave, he would pull the pin on a grenade and roll it in. Um, and he said, usually then they would come out very rarely would they stay in, but um, it's, it, I mean, I think that was really, sad i mean to think like not only to think about those people but to think about being put in that position where those people could very easily have killed you they were very unassuming and harmless but they also could have been booby trapped they could have not been on your side um they could have ratted you out to the japanese you know and and so it was it was a very dangerous situation but I mean, obviously this ordeal with the civilians was ongoing, but the big event of what happened, the big climax of his story, um, comes on Saipan one evening. Um, uh, now, Christopher was an NCO, so he had his squad with him. So his squad was uh, about six or seven guys, um, and they were, they were guarding an ammo dump, um, which was, I mean okay duty usually it meant that you were behind the lines a little bit because you were guarding ammo they didn't want ammo on the front um so it was usually considered like a pretty okay job um the only thing that was dangerous about it was obviously that it's an ammo dump <laughs> um so basically 
um, Christopher was standing there with his guys and um, they heard some Seabees running past. Now Seabees are naval um, engineers and construction men. They call themselves Seabees. Um, they don't work on ships. Obviously they work on land. Um, and they, they were running past shouting, like, like sounding an alarm that the Japanese were counterattacking. Um, and obviously this caused chaos. Like everyone was like, what? Cause this is the rear echelon. Like they're in the back. Yeah. They think they're safe. Yeah. And, and they're also by the water. They're on the beach basically. And, um, mm. and apparently the Japanese had come across the water on these little sampans and like fishing boats. And so th- they were just behind them at this point. Um, and next thing Christopher Mitchell knows the ammo dump that he was standing next to blew up. Um, and he was out, um, you know, and he told this story to his son and and he said to his son that he wasn't sure how long he was out. Um, he couldn't have imagined that it had been that long, maybe no more than like 30 minutes. Um, and when he regained his consciousness, um, he couldn't see anything. He, he couldn't see and he, he was having a hard time hearing obviously because this massive explosion had just gone off near him um but he could hear the voice of another marine from his squad nearby and and the other man he kept mumbling i can't move my legs i can't move my legs um and so the two of them uh and and as you may guess, the rest of the men were killed. Just Christopher and this other man. Um, and obviously this other man said he couldn't move his legs and Christopher couldn't see, could barely hear. And so they forged an alliance in that moment. Um, and so with Christopher as the legs and the other guy as the eyes, the two of them just tried to get away um, because wow. they didn't know where the Japanese were. They weren't safe, obviously. They were hurt. Both of them were hurt. Um, And so, actually, um, Christopher, following this, was reported missing in action because they couldn't find him. They didn't know where he was. Um, And uh, for the record, it turned out that the soldier's paralysis, how he said he couldn't move his legs, was from a pinched nerve, and it was only temporary. He was very lucky. That's crazy. And then, yeah, and then uh, Christopher's not being able to see was a result of the blast throwing dirt into his eyes. And then he had had one of the eardrums and one of his ears blown out. Um, Mm. And so that's why he couldn't hear. Um, And I guess for the rest of his life, he would obviously not be able to hear very well. Um, And um, did his, his vision come back? He was, he could see. He did. He always needed glasses though. Um, Okay. I mean, I imagine that there was a lot of hot metal stuff in his face, so I'm sure that his yeah. eyes were kind of messed up. Um, wow. But the thing that's really, like, scary about it is that, and, and I think this is the saddest thing, too, is that the four other men, there was there was nothing left of them. Their bodies were found only with their boots. That was all that was found. Their boots and then some of their cartridge belts from their ammunition that that went off. 
Um, that's the other thing that I think is like, I, I almost didn't realize that until I was like reading this guy who it's, you know, reading this story from this guy and like, yeah, if you have ammunition on you and you're next to an ammo dump that goes off, the ammunition on you is probably going to blow up too. Um, just from like the heat, if you're standing that close to it. Um, and, uh, so around this time, um, Christopher's family back home receives a telegram telling them that their son was reported missing. Um, and one evening, his mother and father, they went on a date to the movies. Um, and um, during this period, um, a lot of people got their news from the newsreels that would play before movies. And so a lot of people knew what was going on in the war and everything. Because when they went to the movies, there was this little newsreel at the beginning. Sure. And yeah. she went to the movie theater with her husband, you know, and, and she swore to God, she swore to God she saw Christopher in one of the newsreels. And she ran home. She, she had to tell, you know, had to tell everyone. And she died on the front steps of a heart attack. Oh, um, my gosh. Yeah. And she was only 50 years old. Um. No one in the family had the guts to even tell Christopher. Like, they couldn't. They Because once he was reported found, you know, and that he was just wounded, it, it, no one could tell him. They couldn't. They just couldn't bring themselves to tell him. Um, and he... Were they ever able to confirm that he was in that newsreel? He was not. Um, I, okay. You know, the, the chances were pretty small because the newsreel was taken, I think, on a different island. Okay. Um, so he, you, you know, know I, I was thinking when you were telling that that story, I, you know, just as a, I'm a parent, and yeah. Know, if you tell me if my if my son or daughter are off at war, and you tell me that um, they've been reported missing, that's the same thing to me as them being reported dead. Yeah. Uh, you know, at least in my, I mean, it, I dead. guess you would want to hold out hope, yeah. but it's, it's, it's like at that point, it's like, well, the very slim chance it would just be absolutely devastating. And then to, she's obviously probably seeing her son everywhere she goes, you know, memories throughout town mm -hmm. and all of that. And, you know, even seeing him in newsreels and, yeah. oh my gosh, that's, that's horrible. And then, well, and, then and I mean, that, especially, like, oh, well, I was, I was just especially being missing in the Pacific. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was more of a death sentence than being missing in Europe, um, because missing in Europe meant the Germans maybe just captured you and you'd fallen off the rosters for a little bit. But you did not want to get captured by the Japanese. Um, yeah, there was definitely more of an understanding of uh, how you're going to treat prisoners between the, the Germans and the Americans um, right. and, and the British. Um, and, yeah, um, yeah, the Pacific Theater was something different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess it's my understanding that he did not find out that his mother was dead until he came home. Um, and she wasn't there to greet him. Um, because oh. I don't think anyone felt like they could tell him, you know, like, cause he was just, you know, it was so sad. And, um, and the little, the little side note about this that I will share is that after the war ended, um, he hated beaches, for the rest of his life. Um, his son remembers always wanting to go to the beach and, and dad would never wear a bathing suit and he would never, like he would just wear normal clothes to the beach. Um, 
And their mother, you know, always dreamed of like living in Hawaii. Like, like she loved the beach. She loved the tropical, you know, concept and he hated it. Of course he did. I mean, he hated it with every fiber of his being. Um, And so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that that's how it impacted him. Obviously he had nightmares and obviously he had his problems, but for him, the biggest thing was don't ever take me to the beach. I do not want to hear or feel the sand in my, in my, my feet. I do not want to hear waves. He just, it was too much. Um, Yeah. That's a, you know, they didn't talk about PTSD back then to the extent that they do now. Yeah. We can understand that a lot better these days. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. Why, why he doesn't want to go to the beach. Oh uh, yeah. And um the cool little um personal note I have here, and this was like really amazing to find. Um so since I was in touch with a family member of Christopher's, uh they sent me some pictures of like some of the stuff that they got, you know, like the t- one of the messages they got about like him being wounded and I read the message um, the, the, it was like a telegram type thing, um, that was sent to them by, um, the district, the district rep, like the house of representatives person. Mm. Um, and I noticed the name that was signed, the, the rep himself was Christian A. Herder. And about two years ago, I applied for a Massachusetts state scholarship called the Christian A. Herder Memorial Scholarship which is for people who had underprivileged childhoods or whatever. They, you know, something, they they experienced some hardships in their life. And I was lucky enough to win that scholarship. Um, Congratulations. (laughs) Oh, thank you. But the amazing thing was I didn't really know who Christian A. Herder was. And so I read this and I'll, I'll read you the little thing. This was sent. From the Congress of the United States House of Representatives, Washington, D.C., Mr. and Mrs. William S. Mitchell, 46 Long Avenue, Alston, Boston, Massachusetts. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Mitchell, I have only just learned of the very distressing news you recently received that your son, Christopher, had been wounded in action. I am terribly sorry that you should have this worry but do hope the wounds were not serious and that before long you will have some cheering word as to his recovery. Most sincerely yours, Christian A. Herder. Wow. So (laughs) um, that was something really, I thought that was cool. And so the connection back to Redding, um, Christopher raised his entire family um, at 33 Auburn Street in Reading, Mass. Um, so, it's something I remember you you doing when you were on uh, the Body Count podcast. <laughs> you had all of their addresses, and I heard that's it's it's. I, I think Jessica mentioned this. That is one of the hardest parts of of your stories is when you when you tell the stories of these guys and then you you give us their address. Yeah, and it just like. Man, it hits you right in the feels because it's like yeah. it's real. These you can go and see the homes that these people, people lived yeah. in, the kitchens that they cooked in, and all of that. And oh it's yeah, just, yeah that yeah that's uh that that is that is effective for sure. <laughs> so now I I think you you have um 
uh, a story that would leave us on a on a happy note here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which, so uh, I can tell you. If you want to tell it, you're more than welcome. Yeah, so I can tell you. Um, I will tell you about these two brothers a little bit. One of their stories is pretty quick. Um, I'll sum it up pretty quickly, and then the other one is just a really funny story. Um, okay. So the Nickerson <laughs> brothers, um, both of them lived at 11 Spring Street, um, Reading, and. Um, this one, Charles, Charles Murray Nickerson, he was the younger one. Um, he was born in 1921, um, and he he also was in the Marines. Um, he And he also joined the Marines before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Um, and this poor SOB, I mean, oh my goodness. <laughs> he got moved around a lot, which was very difficult. Um I think to deal with, especially as a Marine, because as a Marine, the spirit of your, you know, your, your, the being a Marine, like that's a, that's a big deal, you know, and that's something that to be proud of. And when you get moved around a lot, you know, you don't really get to know your, your unit and it, it's a little difficult. Um, but he managed okay. Um, and, and the really interesting thing about Charles is I think there was something in the water in the Nickerson household because these two brothers, were so unlucky, but at the same time, so lucky. Um, Charles was, uh, yeah, he was part of the fighting. He, he fought on Guadalcanal, which was the first um, land engagement of World War II, uh, for us at least. Um, and Guadalcanal was pretty rough. Uh, he made it through that. He was all right. And, and by that point, he would have been, you know, a veteran of the unit. Like when replacements came into the unit, to replace the men who had been wounded or killed, they would look at him like he was like their big brother. Um, yeah. He's got all the experience points. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he would get transferred to uh, company a fifth Marine regiment, first Marine division in the summer of 1943. Um, and that winter, Actually, uh, the D-Day for this operation, the landing on Cape Gloucester, which living in Massachusetts, I'm always like, why did they name that island Cape Gloucester? Because, <laughs> like, I, why? <laughs> like, um, because there's a Cape Gloucester here, but um, not our Cape Gloucester, although I'm sure Charles would have loved that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, he, they actually landed on Cape Gloucester the day after Christmas in 1943. And I cannot imagine how that would have felt like I, to be experiencing, not only to be experiencing your Christmas on a ship somewhere in the middle of the Pacific ocean where it's hot. Um, and you could die the next day, Yeah, you know, and like y your family might be celebrating Christmas, hoping that you're great only for you to be dead in a hole somewhere in the middle of an island that you have no idea where you are, you know? And, and I, I think that must've been really sad. Um, I mean, I guess Charles was lucky in that the fifth Marine regiment actually didn't land on Cape Gloucester until December 29th. But the very next day, <laughs> um, while they were assaulting an airfield on Cape Gloucester, Charles Murray Nickerson managed to get shot through the right eye, the left armpit, the chest, and the left foot. Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And he lived. 
He lived. Oh, poor guy. I feel bad laughing, but oh I, my I mean, I feel like he probably would have laughed after too. Like, <laughs> I mean, what luck? Um, he he was incredibly lucky. Um, and of course, the war was over for him then. Um, he didn't fight in, in another land campaign after that. Um, yeah. But he did stay in the Marines. He was he wasn't discharged until January twenty third of nineteen forty five. So he served stateside for a while after his stay in the hospital. Um, but I just don't understand getting shot in the right eye. Like how do you live through that? And then the left armpit. That's like the the picturesque Marine at that point. You know, that's like <laughs> <laughs> just kind of what you see. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's what you imagine. You know, I mean, yeah, I yeah. especially during that era. I mean, I bet, I bet that he was welcomed home, welcomed home as a hero. You know, I yeah, of course. I mean, but I, you know, I do wonder. I'm sure he didn't feel like one. You know, I'm sure that to him it was like I got up when I shouldn't have got up and I got shot. What's the big deal? <laughs> you know. Well, and then, you know, you think about the people around him, his mother and his father, and, you know, seeing mm-hmm. your, your child come home, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that I always try and put in my head is like, you know, the, the child who you, you know, you gave birth to, or you helped you teach, walk, teach to walk or ride yeah. a bicycle and they come home and there's got a, they've got a bullet in their eye and throughout their body. That would just be, mm-hmm. it gives me chills just thinking about that. Well, you know, he was so lucky in that way. I mean, he, he lived through that. Not many men can say that they lived through that. Um, and then this is, this leads us to the funny story about his, um, his older brother, um, Robert Arthur Nickerson, who, um, who served in the Navy and he was also in the service before Pearl Harbor was bombed. Although he was not present for the actual bombing of Pearl Harbor. He was in the Navy. Um, he enlisted, uh, he would have enlisted. I, I believe it would have been shortly after he graduated from college or college from high school, excuse me, because he was born in 1919 and then he went and enlisted in 1937 so he was 18, I believe, if I'm doing my maths right. <laughs> um, I'll leave it to you. I don't have a calculator. I, yeah, who knows? Um, and so he was on this very, very unlucky ship. And in fact, if you look up this ship, one of the articles that will come up is this World War II naval ship was so unlucky it almost killed FDR. Um, so that's like the, one of the first things that come up comes up. This ship is the USS William D. Porter. Um, this ship, my goodness, I mean, so unlucky. Um, so first and foremost, um, she departed Norfolk, Virginia on November 12th, 1943. The plan was th- the battleship, the, that she was escorting with the um, escorting with, I'm sorry, rendezvousing with was the USS Iowa BV 61, which was the original Iowa class battleship, by the way. Um, they were going to go to North Africa with FDR to the Cairo and Tehran conferences, um, which were obviously incredibly important for the planning of upcoming campaigns and offensives and everything. And this is a big deal. And, you know, FDR, he's our president very big deal. And so um, while they were departing Norfolk, actually, th- there was a mishap with the anchor of the, the William D. Porter. It tore the railing and the lifeboat mounts off of a, a nearby destroyer. 
um, oh while they were like maneuvering, which was, yeah, not good. Um, and then the next day, a depth charge. So a depth charge is like this cylindrical shaped like thing that drops into the water and it's supposed to sink down and explode around the depth of a enemy submarine. That's what a depth charge is. Um, a depth charge uh, fell into the ocean off of one of William D. Porter's uh, racks um, just out of nowhere, which caused the Iowa and the other escort ships to, you know, start taking evasive maneuvers because they were assuming that the task force had, you know, made contact with the German U-boat. Um, so, of course, there was no German U-boat. Um, oh, my gosh. Um, Somebody screwed up <laughs> really bad. <laughs> no kidding, right? Um. <laughs> And so I kind of feel bad for whoever uh, William D. Porter was. I know. <laughs> named after. <laughs> Do have to kind of feel bad for him. Um, yeah. But the um, basically, it, it's we don't know for sure if that happened because that particular incident was just cited by like veterans of the the ship, but mm. there's no mention of it in the logs. Which I think makes perfect sense. I mean, why would you want to log that you accidentally dropped a depth charge and scared an entire convoy? Um, yeah, but either way. Uh, so on November 14th, um, Roosevelt actually requested the USS Iowa to conduct anti-aircraft drills because he just wanted to see, you know, how like powerful the, the ship was. And so basically it went where the, so they release a number of balloons and that's what the anti-aircraft guns target. And so most of them were shot down. A few of them drifted over and the William D Porter shot down a few. Um, and they also demonstrated a torpedo drill by they, they were simulating a torpedo launch at that at the USS Iowa just to like show you know like anti-submarine and anti-ship capabilities even with a little destroyer um and well uh one of the torpedoes actually was discharged um oh, no. on accident uh, oh, no. <laughs> and it headed towards the USS Iowa <laughs> um and the William D. Porter attempted to signal the Iowa about the incoming torpedo, but because they messed up their their signals because they were under radio silence, um, the first destroyer the, the, the destroyer misidentified the direction of the torpedo and then relayed the wrong message, and it instead told the Iowa that Porter was backing up rather than that a torpedo was in the water, um, which I How find hilarious. <laughs> Because the the signals are so complicated, I think. I think that's how it happens, you know. And especially because they're using signal lamps, not a radio or flags, you know. So, um, either way, in desperation, obviously, the destroyer broke radio silence and, you know, relayed a message to the Iowa that there was an incoming torpedo. Um, And after confirming that it was the destroyer that had done that, um, the Iowa turned hard to avoid being hit by the torpedo. And uh, in the meantime, um, Roosevelt had learned of the incoming torpedo threat and asked his secret service attendee to move his wheelchair to the side of the battleship so he could see. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, not long after the torpedo detonated in the ship's wake, 
like some 3000 yards away. So it was okay. The Iowa was unhurt. Um, but there is a rumor. There is a rumor that as a result of this friendly fire incident, ships would sometimes greet the destroyer by saying, don't shoot. We're Republicans. (laughs) 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 Um, Which I think is so funny, but uh oh that is hilarious (laughs) yeah so basically um after this happened the ship and her crew were obviously investigated um there was also a rumor that the iowa trained her guns on the william b porter like like in case something like actually happened and they needed to sink the ship but a lot of people have um contradicted that so i'm not going to assume it's true but you know um, but that's not even the worst part. The, we're still we're still getting to the like the hilarious, the truly hilarious part of this. Now it wouldn't be so funny if anyone had died, but amazingly, right. no one had died, so it was pretty it was pretty crazy. Um, so on June tenth, nineteen forty five, while serving off the coast of Okinawa, the William D. Porter. Um, suffered from a a kamikaze attack um so at around 8 15 that morning uh an enemy dive bomber dropped into the like kind of dropped below the clouds because it was a cloudy day and so everyone immediately saw it but it was going straight for the william d porter just like nothing was going to stop it the destroyer somehow managed to like avoid it by by turning and the plane splashed down, you know, like near her. Um, and somehow the plane ended up directly beneath the porter before it exploded. Wow. So, yeah. So the, the, the ship was lifted out of the water, um, of course, and then dropped back again due to the, you know, the force of the explosion. She lost power. I mean, it was pretty bad. A, a lot of fires broke out. Um, and it took them, I think it was like four or five hours or something that they were trying to put out the fires and like repair the damage and everything. But unfortunately, they couldn't save her. Um, they were they were given the order to abandon ship. Um, but amazingly, not a single member of her crew died in the incident. Um Oh wow, that's uh, that's so, it. Seems like it's so yeah. rare that when a ship is going down, it's like, oh, we don't have enough life rafts or something, you know, it, or even well, <laughs> the captain goes down. With I the mean, ship. not even that. The fact that a plane exploded underneath the <laughs> yeah. ship, like that is crazy. I, I mean, the fact that he survived all this. First, he almost killed FDR, and then, and then a plane, a kamikaze plane, gets stuck underneath them. It's kind of amazing that whoever was driving the ship was able to evade the plane, which, you know, can turn on a dime and a ship can't. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that after a certain point, the pilot is kind of just bracing and so isn't maybe not paying attention fully, you know, but I, I just, oh, it really, it just cracks me up because, um, like, what are the chances of that kind of luck? Um, That's why I say. Had to be something in the water there. Uh, the Nickerson household <laughs> at 11 Spring Street. There must have been something. Um, 
They both oh, came yeah. home with uh, some pretty uh, serious war stories. That's for sure. They did. Yeah. They they also had one other brother who served in the army. His name was Frank. I cannot find anything on him. Um, and then there was also another brother, Ralph. Whoa. Phone. Okay. There was another brother, Ralph, um, who enlisted in the Marines, but he was, I think he was medically discharged. He was discharged about a year after he had gotten in and didn't really see any combat. So I'm assuming that he was discharged for some kind of medical problem that they discovered. Um, or maybe he just didn't, I don't know. Maybe he, I do know that some guys got discharged for what was kindly referred to as an attitude problem, but (laughs) they needed all the warm bodies they could get. So I highly doubt that would have been why. Yeah. So now these guys, I think you said it at the beginning of the story. What was, do you, do you have their address offhand just out of curiosity? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, 11, 11 spring street, um, was, uh, where the Nickerson family lived. Um, and then, uh, Christopher Mitchell was, I think it was like 33 Auburn, Auburn street. Um, yeah. And then do you, do you go back? Like, have you ever, do you just drive by these houses to see if the, some of them are still standing or, or, you know, gosh, I'd almost be tempted to like knock on the door yeah. and be like, do you know who used to live in this house? You know, it's so funny you say that because I've actually considered actually doing that. Um, and like getting them a little write up of like the person that lived in their home. Um, it, it's always so magical to seeing the the pictures of them standing with their parents, like out in front of the house in their uniforms. And it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just so surreal. Like um, during the fall time here, I don't know why, but I can just so easily picture like a, a guy coming home. I can I can be driving in a car, in a modern car, down the road, and I can see a man standing in an olive drab, just staring up at his house with a big grin on his face, and some other guy on the other side of the road in olive drab with a big grin on his face staring up at his home, and then looking at each other, oh, hey, Bob, where you been? <laughs> I, I can I can just picture it. And that's one of the things that's really magical about doing this work. Yeah, and that that picture you just painted for us um <clears throat> of you know that autumn day or that fall day it, yeah. it, it really we could use one of you I think in every small town across the country who's going back and and bringing <laughs> these stories back to life because um, like you said, and it's something I've experienced in, in genealogy research is, you know, sometimes people don't even know who they're related to or, or, or who the, the stories that are, you know, just one generation removed. You don't know, you know, so many of us don't know what the generations before us have, have done or accomplished or gone through. Um, cause you know, a lot of times they obviously yeah. don't want to talk about it too much. And so bringing it back to life is, it's something that um, I, I truly feel is a worthy endeavor. And, um, you know, you, you, you come at it just from such an expert way and, and it's just, it's priceless information. And it's, it's something that um, I'm very, very happy to and fortunate to have you come on this podcast and, and, you know, 
talk to my audience about that. I, I think it's just so worthwhile. And, you know, like I said, I wish there were, um, I wish there were more people doing this across the country. So you're, you're really doing a phenomenal job, Autumn. It, you're just, it's awesome. I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's something that I'm, I'm so happy to be able to do. And, um, and I do think that I hope, I really hope that through what I'm doing, you know, instead of knowing like some random person from town that, you know, maybe was like kind of famous because they were part of a band at some point that people will know, oh, yeah, what about that, that, uh, that, that Mitchell guy? What, what did he do? I know that name. You know, I hope that right. something comes of it, that instead of focusing on the things that we so like to focus on as people, that maybe we acknowledge the people who are just as normal as we are, except for a few little details. Um, <laughs> so, like, like being on the most unlucky ship in the world. <laughs> I, yes, that is kind of hard to relate to at times. But then again, you know, those days when you fall up the stairs and then fall down them, and you know, it's not exactly the same thing, but you get the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Autumn, why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us again where everybody can find your um, your blog and, uh, and and you know how people can reach out to you. Um, yeah, and, and, and put that out there. Yeah, so um, my Facebook page that I have, which is probably the best way to like get all stuff related to what I do, like everything from newspaper articles to book research, is my Facebook page. It's just called Redding's Boys. Um, and if for some reason you are having a hard time finding it and you'd like me to like get you a link or something, I can give that here to Steven or you can also reach out to me privately um, on Twitter or like however, however you like to do that. Um, I also you can find me um, at the Reading Post, uh, their website. Um, that's the newspaper that I write my articles for. Um, and if you look up my name on their website, you'll see all my articles. And I also included my email in one of those articles. So if you ever have something that you're like, hey, I want Autumn to look at this or, hey, Autumn, I have a question for you or whatever, you can feel free to email me. Um, I also have Facebook Messenger set up, though, so you can use that as well. Um, on Twitter, you can find me at my weird high school name that I came up with that I probably should change at some point. Um it's just underscore, underscore, autumn leaf, underscore, underscore. Um, and that's, I think that's my stuff. Yeah, I think that's it. Also, and I, I'll make sure to include all of that in the show notes when they get published. So, you know, the links will just be right there for everybody to access. Sure, it sounds um, great. And so, Autumn, this was awesome. Thank you again so much. Um, hopefully, uh, you'd be willing to come back on at some point, maybe next time when when the show takes a dive into the uh, World War II era. Because um, yeah. obviously, I think you you probably have um, a limitless amount of stories. I think, I feel like I do sometimes. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's it's the the heart of a genealogist. I <laughs> I, I know the feeling. <laughs> so, oh gosh, yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Autumn. This has been great. Yeah. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. 
The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 